Welcome back to Outside the Box. I'm Mike Desch. I'm the Packy JD Professor of Political Science and International Affairs and the Brian and Janelle Brady Director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. Uh, our episode today, I've dubbed Afghanistan, colon, hold them, fold them, walk away, or run. And that's the tip of the hat to my favorite grand strategist of the late 20th century, uh, Kenny Rogers. My co-host is uh, former Senator, Secretary of the Navy, distinguished Marine, graduate of the US Naval Academy, novelist, movie screenwriter, uh, Jim Webb. Jim, you sound like a Renaissance man. <laughs> well, we uh, very happy to have to have uh, uh, a good show. I think on an on an issue that's very timely. Uh, Will Ruger, who uh, was the nominee to be ambassador to Afghanistan uh, in the uh, late part of the Trump administration, is our guest. And uh, as you know, Afghanistan is called. Um, you know, the place where empires die, the cemetery graveyard of, of empires. Uh, graveyard of empires, yeah. So, uh, and we're looking at um, pretty pretty difficult situation right now. And uh, you were going to uh, go ahead and introduce Will and uh, maybe lay some groundwork. And I'd like to say a little something and then we'll start asking questions. Yep. Uh, Will is also uh, a Renaissance man. Um, he's uh, currently... Uh, the uh, vice president for research and policy for the Charles Koch Institute, and in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Endisk, my center, uh, is a uh, beneficiary of uh, CKF's uh, largesse. Um, Will, before moving to uh, CKF, uh, was a professor uh, of political science at uh, Texas State University um, in San Marcos. Um, he's a Navy uh, Lieutenant Commander in the Reserves and a Afghan uh, war veteran. He was a dirt sailor 2005, Will. Is that when you... Uh, uh, your time in the graveyard of empires? Yeah, 2008, 2009. Right. And uh, before... Um, uh, he, his time at uh, Texas State, uh, he was a program officer at the Liberty Fund um, in Indianapolis, one of the uh, uh, great uh, intellectual uh, opportunities. And there uh, he uh, sponsored uh, Socratic uh, uh, seminars uh, on a wide range uh, of uh, intellectual issues. Uh, literally spanning the gamut from war and international relations uh, to uh, free trade um, and uh, morality and ethics um, and things like that. Um, Will's particular link with uh, Afghanistan, uh, though, uh, is uh, a little bit more recent. Uh, first of all, he was uh, nominated by the uh, Trump administration um, in the fall of 2020 to uh, be our, uh, our ambassador in Kabul. Um, and had there been a uh, second Trump administration, uh, he'd be phoning in this interview uh, from Kabul rather than uh, from Arlington. Um, and secondly, uh, Will published a uh, important op-ed piece um, uh, entitled Why President Biden must withdraw from Afghanistan um, in the New York Times on February 26th uh, of this year. Um, so Will not only served in Afghanistan, but he's a very important uh, voice um, in the uh, larger debate about where we go from here in Afghanistan. So welcome to Outside the Box, Will. And uh, uh, Jim, did you want to... Uh, uh, yeah, let me if, if I could let me let me kick uh, kick something off here. I'd, I'd I'd like to get Will's perspective on how these negotiations went when the, when he was a part of what became known as the Doha Agreement. What he thinks about it now, and uh, obviously um, 
well, there's a there's a lot of moving pieces here, and there's been a lot of moving pieces in terms of the definition of our national interest in Afghanistan since since 01. I was in Afghanistan as a journalist in 04. I think there were about 10,000 Americans there, and the uh, the mission at that time was creeping from an initial obligation to do maneuver warfare against Al Qaeda, against the terrorist entities without permanent bases to go in and, and uh, take action and to leave. And then it evolved into this sort of Leviathan presence that we ended up having, which we're trying to figure out what to do about. But first of all, I'd, I'd like to know how you would define our national interest in Afghanistan, and then also how you feel about the recent announcements that have been made by first by Secretary of State Blinken about 10 days ago, uh, when he wrote a letter to uh, uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, uh, calling for two things. First, uh, a UN-facilitated conference with ministers and envoys from Russia, China, Pakistan, Iran, India, and the United States. How do you think that's going to play out in, in terms of resolving this, this uh, situation? And then also holding talks soon between the Afghan government and the Taliban in senior level meetings. And there's been a lot of movement in the last day or so. Biden, I'm reading from some headlines today, and Biden saying Afghanistan, leaving it by May would be tough. Accusations that the American military sabotaged the Afghan peace agreement. So if, if we could just back that up, and uh, I, I'd like to know your definition or your view on what our actual national interest is with respect to Afghanistan, what you saw in the Doha agreements, and how you are processing uh, uh, your, your opinions on the recent announcement by the Biden administration. Thank you, Mike, uh, for introducing me, and thank you, Senator Webb, for those questions. They're great ones. So I, I would start by just saying that American interests are rather limited in Afghanistan. The most important thing, and I think this shows in the Doha agreement, is that the United States does not want to see uh, the soil Af Afghanistan being used uh, as a place where specifically anti-American and, and uh, uh, U.S. forces and U.S. allies uh, are being attacked from. Uh, and so I think that the United States needs to make sure that there are no terrorist organizations with the intent and capability uh, to harm those actors, especially us, uh, operating from Afghanistan with the, the support either um, uh, implicit or direct of the Afghan government uh, as it plays out over the next years and decades. Other than that, there's not a lot, right? The, you know, Af Afghanistan, unfortunately for Afghanistan, does not have a robust economy and is not a major player in the international trading system. Uh, there are certainly things about Afghanistan's economy that are valued by others, but again, it's a very small economy uh, and it's not central to the economic system in the, in the, in the world. Uh, it also is not that strategically important. And while we talk about it being a graveyard of empires, that's largely because these empires of the past uh, have had interests in, in Afghanistan's neighborhood that the United States simply doesn't have, right? So obviously the British, uh, given the importance of essentially an almost dual empire, right? One located out of London and one located in India had a concern about, about Afghanistan because of India. Russia obviously had a concern because of the great game, right? But those aren't concerns for the United States. And, and I just think that the United States needs to recognize that because of those limited interests, we should really be putting limited means on this target. We don't need to remake Afghanistan uh, for the United States' security, our economic prosperity, or, or the success of our liberal democratic system here at home. And those are those overarching American interests that, would, that, that really any kind of regional uh, question tears up to. And that's why I go back to just the intended capability of any terrorist organization. And, and that's one of the reasons why we do have to keep an eye on Afghanistan. We need to use our intelligence resources, local partnerships, and, um, and potentially uh, our special operations forces and over the horizon uh, abilities to hit any target there. We need to obviously you know, keep apprised of, of what's happening there and have the willpower to hit that. And I think that willpower is an important thing. I mean, the, one of the lessons of 9-11 uh, is that 
we need to take seriously the challenge of specifically anti-American terrorist groups. Uh, and I think that we know that and we would hit groups there uh, if they had the intent and capability to harm us. But again, the world is a big place. Terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda, which has been uh, uh, very much attrited in Afghanistan itself, but terrorist groups can operate anywhere in the globe. You don't need to be in Afghanistan. And so uh, if you think about the 9-11 attacks even, I mean, a lot, a lot of that uh, training and planning happened in the developed world, including in Florida uh, with the flight training. So it's not required. And that's why the safe haven is, is uh, I think, is overplayed and might even be a, a myth. Um, you know, so I think that the United States uh, could largely handle the challenges that could emanate from Afghanistan uh, from outside of the country. We don't need to have a permanent troop presence there. So, Will, we've been in Afghanistan almost for 20 years. Uh, looking back over the uh, 20 years or almost 20 years that we've been there, uh, when and where did things go wrong? Does it go all the way back to the decision uh, in the fall of uh, 2001 to intervene? Does it come later? Uh, put us Put the history of American involvement in Afghanistan in the, the Ruger template for uh, how we deal with a problem like uh, the Afga uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a realist. So I did favor the United States using military force there. And that's a difference, I think, between realists and people who are simply non-interventionists or anti-interventionists, right? I think the United States needed to use military power there after 9-11. We needed to accomplish three things. We needed to, like I said earlier, we needed to attrit, decimate Al-Qaeda as an effective uh, terrorist organization operating from within Afghanistan. We needed to punish the Taliban for its state support of Al-Qaeda. And we needed to uh, kill or capture Osama bin Laden, which we accomplished uh, you know, a long time ago. Uh, those are the three things we needed to do. Um, and so we went in, and I think that, that, that Senator Webb is correct here, right, that uh, uh, we accomplished a lot through some of the um, non-nation building activity, military activities that we conducted uh, after 9-11. Uh, and, and again, some of those were accomplished pretty quickly, right? The Taliban was uh, pushed out. And then over the course of the next decade and two decades, right, you, they were further punished. And this goes back to, I think, the issue of, you know, of how can we be certain that the Taliban and uh, if it becomes part of government or if it becomes the government of Afghanistan, how can we be certain that they will live up to the commitment of the Doha agreement as far as the soil of Afghanistan? And I think one of the reasons is, is their interests, right? Again, going back to kind of realism, especially since we're talking, you know, in an academic setting here, Notre Dame, you guys are a home of realist thought, I think, on international relations and on foreign policy. But realists don't look to intentions. They look to uh, power and interests and capabilities, right? And the Taliban, I think, has an interest in making sure that, that if it came into government or became the government, that it didn't have to suffer what happened after 9-11, right? The United States deposed it with the support of various actors within Afghanistan, especially in the North. They don't want to have to suffer that or the repeated um, punishment that the United States military has meted out to them over the last two decades, merely for something that uh, in a way, you could say is fairly disconnected from the Taliban's goals, right? Um, you know, the Taliban is a is focused has been traditionally focused on what's happening inside Afghanistan. Um, it has not traditionally been um, the kind of group that wants to uh, that has been uh, operating in the same way as Al Qaeda in terms of being a transnational. Um, uh, a group that sees the United States as um, the far evil that it needs to, that it needed to attack. Uh, the Taliban has been focused largely on what's happened inside Afghanistan, and their interests lie in that. And so you could you could see a case in which the Taliban would not want to, uh, if you will, kind of for them screw up a good thing uh, in terms of their ability to try to help 
to, to either be part of or to govern the country. And Afghanistan faces so many problems, you can imagine why they might want to focus in at home uh, if they, again, if they came back into power. So I think relying on their interests is important, not just on the piece of paper uh, that they signed with uh, the United States at Doha. And I think going back to Jim's question about Doha, um, we were in a tough spot, right? The United States has been there for almost two decades. The United States, you know, especially under the Trump administration, wanted to get out of these endless wars that we found ourselves in and wanted to pivot to other priorities, both at home and abroad. And, and, and really the specter of China's rise, I think, has been important here, which is that a lot of people in the Trump administration and, and, and a lot of people also uh, outside of the Trump administration, either in the general public or even in the Democratic Party, uh, because we've got to remember it was Obama that talked about the pivot to Asia, is they want to focus more on how to deal successfully with the rise of China. They also would like to see uh, uh, more focus on domestic priorities. And so uh, almost kind of hearkening back to what President Clinton said when he was running against President George H.W. Bush, it's the economy, stupid. For a lot of Americans, it's about fixing the problems we have here at home. I mean, we have so many. You think about the pandemic, our you know, lack of preparedness for those types of challenges. If you think about the issues of, of policing and racial justice, polarization in our country, those are important things. Our economy, uh, you know, our debt and deficit challenge. I mean, we have many, many problems here at home that Americans would like us to focus on. And then again, back to China, when it comes to our foreign uh, policy, much more desire to do that. And so I think there's a, an aim to shrink the presence of the United States in terms of the cost and energy we have to devote to it, to the Middle East, including Afghanistan. And, 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 and everyone knew that, right? And so when you go into Doha, and the fact is, is that people know that we want to pivot. We also understand that um, that the war hadn't been going well. If you read the Afghan papers that were published by the Washington Post, you saw leader after leader not really know how to solve the problem of Afghanistan, but yet oftentimes claiming publicly that you know victory was right around the corner. You saw that repeatedly. And finally, you have people talking about there had been a modicum of success. Well, Meanwhile, the Taliban had been making gains on the battlefield. The government of Afghanistan has continued to be ineffective, corrupt, and riven by all kinds of challenges. Afghanistan itself was already a really problematic country in terms of its ability uh, to sustain economic growth, uh, to, 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 um, uh, to deal with uh, any number of issues that a country that on a lot of the kind of indicators of wellness, right, uh, of well-being were suffering even prior to the Civil War. So you can see how this all led to, I think, um, what we had, which was Ambassador Khalilzad doing the best he could to get a, a good enough deal so that the United States could withdraw with honor while still protecting against the one interest we really had there, which wasn't values promotion or even uh, democracy. Those are nice to have, but the one really important thing we have. Uh, and, and again, I think that's why I, I would praise the ambassador for getting that deal, despite the fact that, look, it's got some challenges, it's got some flaws, but diplomacy is often uh, the art of the possible. And realists understand that when the wind blows, you have to, you know, tr you have to change the direction or, or trim the sails. And I think the ambassador did that in the Trump administration, I think did a decent job here in getting us to this point. The question is whether, uh, President Biden is going to uh, take the gift that was handed to him uh, and and not screw it up. Wow, well, that was a very long answer. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm going to have to try to break break that down a little bit. I I, uh, I have a couple of comments uh, uh, on that, and then I want to I want to get a little more uh, of your thoughts about Taliban per se and troop troop levels and et, et cetera. Um, but first of all, you know, you started off, you basically said three things. You started off saying our, our principal uh, function was to go after terrorist entities that would threaten the national security interests of the United States. Um, we did that. And we did it fast. I mean, mm -hmm. by the time you were in Afghanistan, when I was in the Senate, uh, our national security advisor, General Jim Jones, 
testified in front of the foreign relations committee on which I sat. And I asked um, how many, how many uh, Al Qaeda are in Afghanistan? Now we said about 150, 150. That's mm-hmm. 20, 28, 29, some, somewhere in, 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 in that time period. And so uh, then this has shifted, you know, to the, the notion that we took out the Taliban for a lot of reasons. And there've been a lot of, you know, human interest regions, human rights re- uh, reasons, et cetera, coming from the United States on that. Uh, but now we are going to uh, apparently accept uh, a set of guarantees from the Taliban uh, without the written guarantees from the existing Af- Afghanistan government. And I'm very concerned about that. You know, I'm of the, the Vietnam era. I watched what happened at the Paris Peace Accords when we did something very similar uh, with the with the communists uh, from Hanoi making a series of guarantees in this Paris Peace Accord, including free elections and no more military uh, offensive, et cetera, that immediately were, were just thrown, uh, thrown out the window when uh, the agreement was signed. And we saw the end result of that. Um, so... Number one, with respect to uh, this negotiation that seems to have gone directly to the Taliban, uh, I'm not so sure I, I would, if I were a Taliban, I'd be thinking the same way that you're talking. Um, that, you know, that we have had a long period of time here of, of uh, acute military involvement and bombings. Actually, I, from the, the, the uh, press this morning, we bombed a Taliban entity outside of Kandahar just in the last uh, couple of days. But does that really mean we'd come back? Uh, that definitely was, the in, was not the incentive in, in uh, Vietnam. They knew the country was weary of the war. We didn't want any more of it. The, the people didn't want any more of it. Uh, and that's essentially what we're seeing in Afghanistan. I think other than the specific reason we went in, I don't think we, we would bother with uh, what, what they are going to do. So do you think that the Taliban uh, would accept any sort of a partnership arrangement as this uh, peace process moves forward. I mean, that's a that's a, a, a definitely difficult question. Uh, getting inside the head of of the Taliban, particularly because of the fact that you know they have seen uh, success and feel operational momentum, and so why would they necessarily want to settle for half a loaf if they think they can get more? The question really is how they look at the balance of power on the battlefield, how they look at, you know, what they think the specter of the future is, and also the internal dynamics, I think, of the Taliban and competitors within that insurgent space. And I think that's discussed probably a little bit too uh, little, which is if the Taliban give away too much or are perceived to give away too much in any of these negotiations, do they get outbid by by? Uh, either um, splinter groups that could emerge or by other groups off, uh, you know, operating in Afghanistan. I mean, we saw this in um, in the context of uh, of the Palestinian question, right, where you saw Hamas outbidding uh, Fatah uh, because they were seen as being a, a, a um, harder core supporters of the interests that the, the people they were trying to attract could look to. And, and I think that would be a worry if the Taliban gave away too much. On the other side of it, right, if the United States in any of these negotiations makes concessions to the Taliban to get an extension, let's say, then one of the worries politically uh, is that you would actually, because again, the Taliban isn't going to accept an extension unless they're given something. Uh, if, if, they, if we give too much there, if the Biden administration gives too much there, will you be in a position where you're actually hurting the, the host government, right, the Jaroa? Uh, if you're, would you be hurting them and helping uh, the Taliban further? So it's a very fraught thing in which there, you know, it's, it's so many different variables at play that it's really hard to know. And one of the big $64,000 questions is if the United States doesn't get an extension uh, with the um, acquiescence of the Taliban, what will the Taliban do? Now, my guess is that the Taliban would um, increase violence against U.S. or coalition's forces. Um, the interesting question, uh, you know, will be: to what extent is the United States going to be able to bunker down such that to prevent um, that? And then, how does that affect our operational uh, effectiveness? 
Um, and, and so, again, I think that we really should be centered on getting away from, you know, how can we leave troops there to how can we find the best way to get out? And I think the, that that's where the argument should be, isn't on like a conditions based approach, which makes basically extends the war forever um, in any meaningful sense. It should be around, should we seek an extension because that would be better for us to, to fr- maybe find a peace deal or to, is it better logistically? Or should Biden just accept what, what he, the, the hand he was dealt and get out based upon the Trump um, withdrawal plan that Ambassador Khalil Saad and the Trump administration concluded? I think that's where the debate ought to be, not where you saw like the, with the U.S., uh, you know, with the Afghan study group, which I, which seemed to be kind of so disconnected from where both the politics of this are and the realities on the ground in Afghanistan. Well, if I could uh, follow on to that, you know, we're realists, so we tend to be worst case scenario uh, sort of guys. Um, so let's think about the uh, worst case scenario in Afghanistan that it, Senator Webb had used the Vietnam analogy, um, we pull out and uh, the Afghan or the uh, Taliban, uh, you know, dominate uh, uh, Afghanistan, you know, they get Kabul, probably don't get the whole country. Um, Could we live with that, do you think? Um, And uh, how would you, uh, you know, assess the worst case scenario? Yeah, I mean, hopefully we don't have the worst case scenario, which I think would be and people worry about is is some Saigon like moment. But I think that one of the one of the benefits of the withdrawal deal is I think that that allowed us to have a honorable deal that looked like and is on terms agreeable to us and agreeable to the adversary. And it doesn't prevent, present the, the worst case scenario for the United States, which is a, a kind of dishonorable, what looks to be a dishonorable result where the Taliban does not acquiesce to an extension. The United States continues the war and, and we're just kicking the can down the road. Things change on the battlefield against the government of Afghanistan. And then we're, we're led to have to do some type of um, uh, of action in which that, you know, Kabul is taken and the embassy has to close and things like that. Like, we don't want to have to see that. Um, and I think that if we could maintain a relationship such as we did um, with the Taliban through the process of getting the withdrawal, um, withdrawal deal, uh, that that scenario could be avoided. Now, the question of whether what Afghanistan is going to look like is I think it's going to be messy. I mean, I think that's the only reality here. Uh, it's hard to imagine in this peace process that you're seeing that anything happens very quickly because these are very long-standing challenges and divergences of interest between different groups. That's why they're fighting, right? Um, if there weren't such divergences of interests, uh, then then um, you wouldn't be able to recruit. You wouldn't be able, you wouldn't maintain that ability to fight on either side. Right. Um, and so I think that we have to be cognizant and really, I think, ratchet down our expectations of rapid change, um, some kind of like instant grand bargain. Americans are impatient. Right. We you know, in one sense. Right. We'd love to see this bargain right now. And then we have peace because we ought to all recognize, you know, Fukuyama's uh, wisdom that. Uh, the best system is a liberal democratic one. Everybody should jump on board and we can end history. But I know, Mike, you're not a fan of that perspective. I'm gathering, Jim, you don't think that that's very, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, sound as a theory of the world. Um, you know, and so we, we kind of hold out hope for that. So we're both impatient. We want it now. And then we w- aren't willing to, I think, kind of trim our sails when it doesn't when it doesn't happen. Right. So it's a it's a combination of thinking that people could get to this if only we had the will to do it. And then when it doesn't happen, like being unwilling to accept the 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 challenge to the thesis itself. Um, Let me let me ask you two questions about that. Um, The first one's kind of a short answer. And then and then the other one is a a numbers uh, answer or asking for Um, the. uh, the Americans are an impatient people, but they're also pretty patient here. We've been we've been doing this in Afghanistan for 20 years. Uh, and I'm curious, when I was reading the Doha 
documents, there actually were two documents. One of them was uh, a, a separate document by the government that we recognize. And by the way, my, my concern here is, is uh, the integrity of international agreements that, you know, are, are these things that people are uh, saying they're going to do that they actually will do. Um, and is, is the current Afghanistan government that we recognize a signatory, or are they only move, uh, uh, expressing their views through the United States? One of the criticisms that people have launched at the withdrawal deal is the fact that we directly, the United States directly engaged with the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan was a bystander. And I actually think that that was, was required. Again, getting back to kind of reality-based, right? The Afghan government has an incentive to be a spoiler uh, and had an incentive to be a spoiler in that process. I mean, you think of, about it from their side. They believe that the United States staying um, will help ensure their continuity, uh, right? Their, their, uh, their ability to continue to govern. Uh, it assures that the United States is putting resources into the country. And so in a way, it's a form of, of buck passing, which is entirely rational. Um, but the, the question for, I think, the United States is, is, is sheerly around what are American interests here? Because if you're going to ask uh, American men and women to fight there and to potentially make the ultimate sacrifice, it, it, it has to be pretty kind of, I think, coldly realist. And does that mean that there aren't going to be some trade-offs with some other things that we care about? Uh, there will be. But I think that's a kind of an adult-like approach to, to grand strategy is, is, is really recognizing that you have a responsibility to your national interests because governments have a responsibility to their people. And the responsibilities to others um, uh, are more probably in the omission category than commission, right? So we have a, we, the, some of the responsibilities might be to live up to the norm of sovereignty in international relations um, because it, that's a, a, it's good well, for us well, well, uh, well, and it's a better way for the world to work. But I, I don't guess, think we have I, a responsibility to... I get, I get, I get to your point. I, I get What's your that? point here, but I get your point. But the major point, and you know, it's up for grabs, but in terms of the way that I view international agreements is that we are there as uh, an ally of a government that we recognize, and we are not signing an agreement uh, along with them to, to the, the enemy that you call our enemy. I get your realist point, but it, it leads me to have some concerns about the document. The second question I have very quickly, it's a numbers question, is um, do we know how many uh, American troops actually are in Afghanistan. And in that, I would include uh, the contractors, American contractors. How many, how many people are we really talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go into any specific details, uh, but I would say that, that obviously we have the 2,500 uh, official U.S. forces there. The New York Times is, is alleging that there's a thousand other American troops and then I, I think that everyone knows it's reported widely that there are you know, thousands of contractors. You know, that's, a, that's a still a substantial uh, number of, of forces. But again, we were not able to accomplish with a lot more troops there uh, what I think some of the people in the United States would like to see. Right. So if you know, if you saw you saw with the Afghan study group, we are not going to be able to meet those conditions that a lot of people would like to see. Uh, with the small number, uh, admittedly, it's larger than I'd like to see, uh, but even that, that level of troops is not going to be able to accomplish a lot of those goals. Um, you know, and so I think that we have to be careful. But on, on the point about, about partners and allies, I mean, again, you know, you, you, it's, it is important to honor your international agreements to the extent you can. Um, but the fact is, is that when circumstances change um, and your interests change, uh, or your perception of those interests change or the means to secure them, then you have to change how you approach these things. And no, no better president than George Washington understood that, which is why, for example, you know, the most important alliance in American history, um, you, know, you might argue it was with the British and the Soviets in, in World War II, um, but you could argue that no more important alliance was with them with the French 
uh, at our country's founding. We wouldn't have a country, we wouldn't be independent, you could argue, uh, in the same way we are without the French. And yet in the, in the 1790s, we, because of our interests, had to shift gears. Uh, and I think that that, again, it's, it's, a, it's a requirement of international life because you cannot stick with things merely because you have pieces of paper. It doesn't mean you do that lightly, Jim. So I take your point. But again, uh, we have to be very careful uh, about um, continuing on a road for something that maybe no longer is, is realistic. Yeah, I'm sort of uh, wondering along those lines, you know, this uh, talk about enemies and uh, allies uh, seems to impose a lot more clarity on the situation than I really see. And I was thinking, you know, in the context of Secretary Blinken's uh, letter to uh, President Ghani, um, you know, that ally is uh, certainly uh, turning out to uh, be problematic uh, you know, from the uh, perspective of the U.S. government. But I also think of Pakistan, which in different uh, periods in history was a very close ally of the United States, including in Afghanistan uh, during the uh, uh, war against the, uh, the Soviet Union. Um, and I think uh, in both cases, uh, you know, circumstances have changed. Um, and, you know, sort of thinking about our allies as a, uh, a permanent uh, designation uh, may impose uh, way too much uh, clarity on a, on a situation that's uh, a lot less clear. The British used to refer to Afghanistan as the great game. Uh, I think descriptively uh, they got it right. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that in terms of having recognized it as the great game that they played it very well. But speaking of great games, I want to shift to uh, the politics of the Biden administration. Uh, because, I, you know, on the one hand, you've got um, the uh, new Secretary of State, uh, you know, dressing down President Ghani for not, uh, you know, making uh, enough progress, uh, you know, in terms of uh, moving forward um, with the uh, agreement. On the other hand, though, you've got the president um, clearly going wobbly on the May 1st deadline. Um, and uh, it seems to me that uh, the Biden administration is being pulled in two diff different directions politically. So how do you see this playing out inside the beltway? And if Jim wants to get in on that, since he's inside the Beltway, uh, too, I'd love to uh, uh, hear his thoughts about it as well. What are the politics of this? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and Senator Webb, with the emphasis on that first word, knows more about politics than I do, uh, uh, having never, uh, other than being a, a library trustee, an elected library trustee, I've never uh, uh, held an elected office. But, uh, uh, you know, I've never even run for dog catcher. <laughs> I guess well, other than things, senator, I've never held elective office either. So. <laughs> <laughs> other than senator, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think that that um, you know people don't tend to vote on foreign policy issues uh, writ large, but on the margins, especially given the margins have been pretty thin over the last couple of elections. Uh, it can matter. And, and there's been some some social science research done by people like Kreiner and Shen that have that showed that in 2016, there were people that that saw Hillary Clinton as being more hawkish and President Trump as being, uh, you know, more uh, focused on 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 getting out of these things or avoiding things like the war in Iraq. And you saw that in the South Carolina primary where, where he went after the assembled uh, people on stage talking about. Iraq being a disaster and we needed a shift in our foreign policy. So I think that that resonated. Same thing with President Obama. He was seen as the less hawkish um, in 2008. In 2000, President Bush, actually, people forget this, could have been perceived as less hawkish because he was talking about no new nation building. So I think it does help on the margins. And what I would say when it comes to Afghanistan is that he doesn't own the war right now, as far as I see it. I don't think that the American public will see him 
as what uh, Sarah Kroku at the University of Maryland would call a, a culpable leader, right? He's not responsible for the war. He's not responsible for uh, the withdrawal deal. And so I think if he stuck with the Trump deal, he could say, look, I was in a, a tough spot. We had already gone down to 2,500 troops. Uh, and uh, I would have to, if we, if we wanted to accomplish anything more, I would have to increase the number of troops. That could have all kinds of ne negative ramifications. And meanwhile, we're in a pandemic and China, et cetera. So I think that he could do that. And then if there's messiness, he could blame President Trump uh, for tying his hands. And, could, and I think the people would accept that. And I also think that once elites stop paying attention to a part of the globe, then especially in a bipartisan way, then that doesn't show up as much. And that's been one of the things, and Mike, maybe you know this literature better than I do, but the CNN effect, the, there's research on the CNN effect that it actually isn't true. It's when elites put something on the map that people pay attention. So if the Biden administration spends the next three and a half years not talking about the messiness of Afghanistan when we leave, and you could see Democrats on Capitol Hill not wanting to bring it up either, and you also see Republicans who wanted to end endless wars not want to bring it up, you could see very few people outside of the Liz Cheney's and whatnot actually wanting to bring this up onto the major stage while we pursue other issues. And so I think that as long as he isn't perceived as a culpable leader, he could do this. Now, if he extends this, and, and the longer it extends, the more he owns it, it becomes Biden's war, which stimulates Republican antibodies to try to go after Biden saying, hey, we had the Trump withdrawal deal with honor, and now we've got this bleeding ulcer of a war that's continued. You botched it. And that will come up in 2024, especially if there is a Trump or a Trump heir um, in running for president against Biden or his vice president. But Jim, you know politics better than me, so maybe I'm off. Well, let me, let me just say uh, a, a couple of things about that, and then I want to uh, ask you something else. Um, first of all, I don't think that the Biden administration to this point has been at, at all irresponsible. You know, they've even said that they may, they may go with the, the timeline. I think they've been pretty careful in terms of trying to lay out uh, a, a way that they can focus on it in a uh, focus on this issue in a, you know, in a, in a way that they will finally, you know, to your point, uh, accept uh, responsibility for the, the decisions that are made. Um, to go back um, just very briefly to this other thing that allies do change. There's no question about that. I saw something years ago that said the only country we've never actually fought, major countries uh, that, we, that we've never actually fought is Russia. <laughs> but when you're an ally uh, on the ground of a, of a host nation, uh, recognizing that particular government, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot different. It's a lot more complicated in terms of how you decide to leave. I mean, we could, as far as I'm concerned, you and I share one, one uh, you know, very ab abiding thought on this, and that is that I think we should leave. I don't think we should have uh, even put into place permanent installations in Afghanistan. We could have accomplished a national security interests without doing that with the mobile concept that, that began and was just starting to atrophy when I was there as a, as a journalist in 04. Um, now, let me ask you something people don't talk about very much, but it concerns me, and that is the notion that Afghanistan at bottom uh, is, is basically a narco state. When I was over there in, in 04, I, I was in nine different places. And when I was up in Kunar province, the warlord was also the drug lord. The place uh, I was at a, a special forces base that had uh, 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 Marines there too. I could look across the river and the same warlord that they were dealing with owned you know, as far as the eye could see, opium patches. And I used to say when I was in the Senate, you know, I can't, I can't tell you that every village in Afghanistan had an opium patch, but every village I was in had an opium patch. And I've, I have uh, seen it printed that Afghanistan is the largest exporter of opium in the world. Well, who gets that money and how should that affect our policy, if at all? Again, this points to the really complicated nature of the Afghan situation and, 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 and our lack of humility about our ability to, to kind of understand it well and to, and to, uh, and our kind of hubris 
and, and thinking that we could push on these levers and these levers and handle this and handle that is amazing. I mean, everybody remembers the, because the New York times printed it on the front page, that arrow diagram about all the things that had to happen in Afghanistan for our strategy. I mean, that just shows the complexity and the issue of, of drugs, Jim is, is, is a huge one. Right. Um, and, you know, part of the problem I see it is that when it comes to drugs, it's largely a, demand side problem, right? As long as people want to put that garbage in their body, then someone will find a way to provide it. And the economics are such that even if you try to stop it, it only increases the price potentially, or it increases the price, which increases the incentives. And a, a place like Afghanistan, where, where uh, is apparently a good place to, to grow poppy, um, is going to find a way to try to supply that market. Uh, and so I, I think that the basic economics of it goes against, particularly for a, a poor country that doesn't have a lot to offer the international marketplace. And I don't like the fact that it's a narco state. Uh, you know, I, I would like people to stop using drugs so this demand would dry up. Um, but uh, I think that's a reality of Afghanistan. And, and you can also see how uh, the kind of if you push on one lever, it affects the other, right? There's just so many unintended consequences. So if we did more to try to stop uh, on the drug side, because we felt we had a national interest in, um, in protecting against um, uh, suppliers of drugs, you can imagine that could alienate local actors that we might want to help on other margins. And that again gets into the moral hazard and the complicated nature of the conflict and all the unintended consequences. You push on one thing and something else is problematic. I mean, look, well, this is why it's so hard. I tend to agree with you. And, and you know, we don't, we can't, you know, it, you can't go too far on that. But the, the reality seems to be that a lot of the people who are the, uh, the drug lords are getting money from our aid to Afghanistan. And that's, and, and that's really another reason for us to really narrowly define our national security interests in terms of what really affects the American national security and all of this nation building and this sort of thing, I think has probably increased the wealth of, of a certain element of, uh, of people in that country who affect uh, the positions that leadership take. Just, yeah, and Jim, I, just a thought. Right. Just no, thought. I think that's great. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's very sound. I mean, one of the things that I think Mike was alluding to this, and I think your comments really drive it home, Jim, is that Americans tend to see struggles. And when I say Americans, of course, that's a broad brush, but, but the, the foreign policy elite and, and, and then a lot of people um, who have supported us, and I think this, might, this was probably a product of, of um, World War I propaganda, World War II propaganda, the Cold War propaganda, uh, and in many cases, the, the, that propaganda was based on a lot of facts, right? The Nazi regime was awful and horrible. And, and, and the Soviet Union, in terms of the godless communism trope, there was, uh, you know, so it was also an awful regime. But I think it has conditioned Americans to think about international politics in a Manichaean fashion, right? We just see black or white because the two defining struggles of our, our lifetime and our grandfather's lifetimes were much closer to that kind of good and evil struggle. Whereas in Afghanistan and other places in the world, whether it's Libya or Iraq or other places, right? It's a lot of gray hats or a lot of black hats at once. And your allies are problematic. The adversary is, is problematic. And you're, you're kind of uh, trying to find uh, actors that you can live with, even if they're imperfect. We see this in Syria. Um, and it's a complete mess. And that's why I only get into these things when it's absolutely necessary, because otherwise you have to make these trade-offs and you have to deal with people. I mean, you saw guys like Dostum, you know, being, in, you know, kind of uh, hailed coming back into Kabul recently. I mean, you know, geez. <laughs> and again, I'm not immune to the realist notion that you know, sometimes the enemy of your enemy is your friend. You know, Stalin was necessary to ally with to defeat Hitler. But when it's not necessary, why do we want to get in bed? Will the uh, problem with a great topic like this uh, for a uh, uh, one hour podcast uh, is that it could easily go for uh, two or three. Um, but unfortunately, uh, we don't have that uh, luxury. 
Um, and so uh, I think at this point, uh, we'll uh, just have to uh, say that uh, uh, the Afghan uh, issue is not only incredibly complex on the ground um, in uh, Southwest Asia, but it's also very complex uh, on the uh, bitter battlefields uh, there in Washington, D.C., um, inside the Beltway. So, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, a lot more uh, discussion of this issue um, in the coming months. But uh, I want to thank you uh, very much, uh, not only for uh, joining Senator Webb and I uh, for Outside the Box, uh, but also uh, to thank you for uh, all you've done to engage these issues, not only uh, as a philanthropic leader, but also as somebody who put real skin in the game um, and spent a year in Afghanistan with uh, boots on the ground. Uh, Jim, did you want to uh, say any last words? Well, let me, uh, let, me, let me echo what, uh, what you said, Mike, and also to thank you, Will, for uh, the, the depth of the responses that you had. And, and I think we probably agree on more than we then we disagree on this. I think it's it's time for the United States to be much more careful in terms of how it articulates its national security strategies around the world and where we put our people and where we use military force. And hopefully this is uh, uh, one of the major levers that we're going to see as we figure out how to uh, depart from Afghanistan without uh, minimizing the national security interests that we do have. And so thank you very much, Will, for being with us. That's thank a great you. note to uh, end on uh, from that, again, uh, great American grand strategist, uh, Kenny Rogers. Uh, <laughs> we're all in the Foldham uh, category, uh, although it uh, sounds like uh, Jim might uh, uh, hold him a little bit longer. Well, I know when to Will. walk away. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd rather walk away than have to run. <laughs> I think this withdrawal deal has given us the chance to walk away, right? We had, we had uh, over a year, uh, not hasty or precipitous. Great. Well, thanks so much, Will. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the international security center or the university of notre dame which take no institutional position music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap <laughs>